Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 485. For the second time this week, I'm here, guys. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode on Monday. If you didn't go back and listen to that, honestly, it's unmissable. It's with a guy called Mark Mylod, who's got an amazing film called The Menu, but also did Succession and Game of Thrones and Maid Marian and Her Merry Men and Shooting Stars and The Fast Show and The Royal Family and Shameless and Ali G. I mean, I could go on. It's a great episode, but today's is a great episode as well, because I was meant to be talking to Jack Spring as a bonus episode that's like 30 minutes, maybe 45. It turned into a full episode because it was so good. This dude is inspirational, and I can't speak highly enough of him. Jack Spring has got a film out called Three Day Millionaire, which I highly recommend you go and catch. I don't think you'll be able to listen to this and not want to go and see it, but when you hear his story of how he became the youngest British director in history, to have a a a feature film out there, you'll be amazed, and how he raised the money to do that. And and then his journey to make Three Day Millionaire and the story behind it, and what a Three Day Millionaire is. And then the stories of him growing up and making films. It's amazing. Honestly, this is a really inspirational one. If you're into film or not into film, this is a must listen. As ever, we're brought to you by speechvelomentrecords.com, patreon.com forward slash scroobiuspip, and twitch.tv forward slash scroobiuspipio. That's the fastest I've ever done that bit, and it's because I'm excited for you all to hear this episode. So prick your ears back, get comfy, and enjoy episode 485 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the legend, Jack Spring. Oh, we've got it all covered. Um, I'm here today with Jack Spring. See, I've got us rolling straight away because the good thing about this podcast request is that it came through from the PR people for your new film just as we were arranging a catch-up anyway. So so now we can just have the catch-up on mic. (laughs) It's even easier. How are you, mate? Brilliant, mate. Very, very well. It is an absolute honour to be on this show. I, I've listened to it for for years and years religiously. Some of the guests you've had on, uh, you know, insane. So I feel uh, absolutely honoured to be in their company and uh, speaking to you today. Well, I'm delighted to, to have you on to talk about a three day m- millionaire. But I want to talk about everything really because um, you reached out to me a few years back, right, and just asked to meet up for a bit of a chat. And even pre-pandemic, I'm crazy unsociable, but <laughs> you kind of, I liked the, the 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 way you approached it and, and we kind of met up and just had a chat with no real end goal, really, just kind of to say hello. And it was, your story, I think, is super inspiring. So, yeah, Thank it's going to be man. good to talk through it all again. Yeah, it was great. It was one of them just beautiful organic things, wasn't it? Like, yeah. Obviously, I kind of grew up on your music. And that inspired, you know, like I dabbled in poetry and some of my like earlier short films were kind of poetry based and that kind yeah. of all came from, you know, heavily your influence. So, uh, Madness. yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great meetup. And obviously the, the pandemic happened in between and, uh, here we are for rodeo number two. Yeah. Oh, that's what I was thinking. Cause we, you were telling me about three day millionaire when we met then. And I assume it was about to happen and then everything paused a little bit. <laughs> But before we even get into that, how are you at the moment? Because it's about to yeah. come out. It's your second feature film. Yeah. You're what, 26? And you've got yeah. two yeah. feature films under your belt. How is it all? Because, again, it's been a long journey because of the pandemic as well. But, you know, it's, it's stressful stuff, right? It's it's yeah. emotional stuff. Yeah, it is. It is stressful. Stressful is the word at the minute. I, I think I find everything pre-release the most stressful about the whole the whole cycle. I got sent this script about four or five years ago and um, yeah. trying to get it financed was hard. It's all obviously set in Grimsby and um, I was trying to get it financed by kind of London financiers that didn't have any kind of emotional hook to the thing. And, and you know, it's a sort of script. It doesn't quite fit into commercial heaven space. You know, it's a kind of little bit of everything, you know, and, and that, that, that doesn't help when you're trying to sell a movie. But 
Penny kind of dropped that we needed the finance from Grimsby or, you know, high net worth individuals or companies from Grimsby. So the penny dropped and that happened just before COVID. And then, you know, trying to raise millions of pounds during the worst financial crisis of a generation wasn't easy. But we got there and we, we shot the film about this time last year. I think we wrapped this time last year, last week, if that makes sense. And, um, yeah, it was the honour of my life. Honestly, I, I cried my eyes out as soon as we wrapped. Like, I, yeah. I had had such a great time. And it was a big monkey off the shoulder. You know, like the BFI tweeted the other week that there's something like 83% of first-time filmmakers don't make a second film, mm. which the BFI shouldn't be tweeting stuff like that. But it's, 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 it's probably, is a, it? Yeah, it probably <laughs> is a, you know, it is a fact. And then, um, you know, to, to have such a long gap between one and two, you know, just because the budget jump was so massive and, you know, it's just the next step up the ladder. And, you know, it's still at a budget level where, you know, I'm responsible for raising the money and, you know, I'm not from a money background, but you know, it's all kind of self-taught. And, um, yeah, it was tough. It was the biggest change in my career without, without doubt, but we've certainly made the best bit of work of my career. You know, we're, we're super, super happy with it. And it's like I've been in labour for five years and now I'm about to leave my mess all over cinema floors across the country. And I can't wait. Yeah, com- completely. I love it. Well, um, I want to talk about that journey then. Like, w- w- what was your route into into making films and into into this world? Because as I said, you've come in at a proper young age and made stuff happen. So, what was it that drew you into film and, c- and c- cinema? And and yeah, or what's the journey been? Yeah, so it all started, I think when I was about eight or nine, my dad got made redundant. Um, you know, he was, he was a marketing manager. I think it was for like a special effects company at the time. He got made redundant and then instead of using his time off of work to play football manager or whatever kind of normal people might do, he decided to make uh, these little stop motion animation films with me and my brother. And, you oh, know, wow. super zero budget. And I remember it was just when my, uh, Microsoft, uh, the movie maker came on the scene on like the early 2000s computers, right. super yeah. basic. And um, we draw these little cartoon figures on bits of paper and we get sticks out of the garden and attach them to the bits of paper, take a picture, move it slightly, take a picture, move it slightly. But we build these like extravagant sets. Like we did David and Goliath, like when I was about five, my directorial debut. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, like these things are still on VHS and, you know, my dad uh, digitized them not too long ago. So they, they exist. And um, yeah, they're brilliant to see. And that's kind of what piqued my interest. And then when I was about 12 or 13, I had a very cheeky request uh, for a digital camera on Christmas. It was just when them Canon ones started doing video. Yeah. And I was like, cool, they're cool. You can like control the focus and stuff. Uh, and I must have been a good boy that year because uh, I was lucky enough to get one. And um, then I was away, mate. I was like, you know, every weekend I'd make a short film. Like I'd write something on a Friday, shoot Saturday, edit Sunday. And, you know, they're all still on YouTube or Facebook somewhere. And I, I always had this thing since a kid. I don't know where it came from that, you know, filmmaking was a little bit like, learning to play guitar like you start off you're going to be crap the more you do it the better you're going to get it's like any craft like it's common sense yeah. to me and i was never afraid to be shit at it you know like i knew you, you know it's like picking up a guitar and trying to sell out wembley stadium like i was quite comfortable with learning and i kind of always knew even from that young age like the more i do this the better i'll get and you know that proved to be the case because like every now and again every like three or four years i'll watch all them short films back from you know like the age of like 12 upwards and like it's quite a fascinating journey of discovery in just terms of you know they started off as these little kind of super concepty ones like i do like each shot with one second bang on and tell this 60 second story yeah. or you know it's all one shot and in you know for two and a half minutes over a you know the kind of poemy monologue thing and they kind of all started off in this kind of weird sort of suspensey horror place because the equipment i had i, I couldn't release decent audio i couldn't record decent audio because it was me doing everything and i just didn't yeah. have the money to buy a mic they started off these super kind of tense things because you can you know you rip a bit of audio offline and make it sound half decent. And um, yeah, through that, I, I just kind of discovered that A, I like directing out of the whole filmmaking process. The kind of more I did it, the more people started offering, you know, if you need a composer or if you need an editor or, or whatever. So I worked out, I, I just love directing. That's kind of the only bit I really care about. And then working out that kind of comedy was what I do. Um, yeah. Comedy with heart. Uh, comedy that makes you feel because you know again like this, it sounds weird saying it but it's mental self-awareness for like then i guess a, a teenager was that i am a teenager and i've never been to war i've never done kind of like true romance or had big like loss in my life like there's lots of stuff i can't relate to but i know what makes me laugh and if it makes me laugh you know i'm usually the target audience for my own stuff so it, yeah. hopefully it would make my target audience laugh i don't like it seems weird saying it cause it's like this this crazy self-awareness mate i love it because again you you know already that 
your kind of age bracket is the desired target audience, but the actual age of most directors is way above that. So they're all aiming towards you and you can go, no, I know what I like. I know what I'm into. I know what entertains me. And yeah, I was lucky. You know, like I think, I think the biggest battle most people have in their lives. And my dad still says it like, he still says he doesn't know what he wants to do when he's older. And you know, like I was just so lucky that I had that exposure as a kid. Dad got made redundant when he did. He decided to kind of do something creative with us instead of, you know, watch films all day or whatever. And yeah, you know, uh, I worked out by the age of 13, I wanted to be a film director. And, you know, I've been pretty single-minded from that. The the story of getting the first one made, you know, was mental. Because again, like, I'm not, you know, I think the assumption when you hear a young film director is that daddy's giving them the money or, you know, they must be, like, super wealthy. I'm not. Like, none of my investors I've known before I've started the process. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the first one, I was 19. So I I think I became the youngest in the UK to, to do one. And um, I dropped out. I went to uni for a year, went to York Uni, did film and TV production, and was just learning more by doing my films every week than I was learning on the course. And it's, you know, nine grand a year, kind of wasting the three years of your life. It's weird with things in in the arts, isn't it? I've talked about it before. I did photography at uni and I dropped out after a year because of exactly that. I was getting in debt. And with the arts, it's a weird one because a certificate at the end doesn't mean that much. The no. work that you produce means much. And the only advantage I really saw was the equipment that my uni had available to me. But yeah. if I'm spending that much a year, I can rent some of that or get some of that or or, or just use, learn on cheaper equipment. And Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, the, the amount of debt the kids get themselves into, you know, I, I think the kids are kind of almost like, it's false marketing. You know, like, no one told me when I signed up for uni that this certificate doesn't actually mean anything in the industry. Yeah. Or that, you know, like, I, I found, and it was a Russell Group uni, so, you know, it was always probably going to be more kind of academic than, than most that teach film and TV. But, like, there was there, there's so many restrictions. Like, you made this, like, shitty little two-minute film after your first year, and you weren't allowed to use anyone outside the course. Like, you had to use the other film and TV kids as actors. You had to shoot it on campus. They kind of told you what genre it is. And I'm like, that's not the point of what we should be doing here. We should, like, be discovering all this ourselves. And like, It's know, really interesting. It's really interesting because I'm coming to learn and respect the many areas of film and TV and directing and writing. And I've learned, as my agent will tell you, <laughs> I'm really single-minded on my writing. I want to write my scripts and I want to make my scripts. And I've I've been put in, in meetings that people would be well excited about but then i'm in there i'm like well this isn't what i want to make like i don't want to make your script or your show yeah and it's a weird one but i also think that's a really valid and important area those who who will write or direct as you know part of a bigger project it's a skill in itself you know i'm yeah. the, the way i look at it is that i'm not yet capable of putting what I put into my passion projects, of 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 driving that out of me on anything. Do you yeah. know what I mean? If I'm just yeah, booked, yeah. Oh, oh, can you write on this series? It's like, well, I'm not into that series, so yeah. I'll just I'll just be typing. It won't have any of the excitement of yeah. the the scripts I've written that have caught your attention. I'm not going to be able to write like that on this because it's yeah. it, it it would just be a gig. But again, yeah. I think they are different skills. I, I want to make it clear I'm not the big learning thing has been that I'm not disrespecting either of them. I think it's a skill I don't currently have. I may at some point, but yeah, yeah I completely right. understand that if you're being told like, here's the genre, here's the, here's everything. It's like, yeah. no, I don't want to make that. I want to make this. It was crazy. <laughs> and I, like, I dropped out and um, I wanted to raise 150 K for destination Dewsbury, my, my first feature film. Cause uh, there's a thing called EIS, which is like an investor-friendly investment thing that the government run, where they get, if it's a £150,000 film or less, they get like half of their money back off their tax bill. Right. So our budget was £149,999 just by chance, naturally. <laughs> and, um, you know, like I, I couldn't find anyone that would invest anything, you know, and there was one chap that you know, kind of kindly gave me some feedback and he said, I'm not investing because you're 18. And I was like, all right. So I went away and thought, like, why is that the problem? And it's because I'd never seen that amount of money. Never mind budgeted it, not spunked it. Never mind made profit on it. And, yeah. and you know, like the unfortunate truth for the film industry is it's business as much as it is art. You know, we, we make a product and we sell it to an audience at the end of the day. It's just the product we make is art. Yeah. And it's like a conglomeration of like every art form. Like it's like the, the master art in my eyes. And yeah, so I, I, I went away, started a business 
to kind of and gave myself a strict 12 months like I'm going to come back after 12 months to the investors with hopefully a good business record. So I taught myself how to run a business and then um, I woke up in Leeds hungover one hot Sunday July morning and decided to launch what became the UK's largest inflatable hot tub rental company. Naturally. <laughs> like I had Amazing. like 500 quid left in my student overdraft, bought a hot tub, which was like 400, read a book about social media marketing to middle-aged women because I figured from all the other competition that mums mums would be the, uh, the demographics they were engaging with the other companies. And yeah, like a year later, we had like 180 hot tubs across the country, like nine different cities. And it was, it was like a big logistics company. But then I got out of that after a year and was able to tell, you know, go back to, you know, the few rich people that I did know and had kind of most of like 90% of them I met in that year doing this business thing. And yeah, you know, we got the, we got the film financed. So it was uh, an alternative way into the uh, film industry for sure. A hundred percent. And it becomes a hell of a story as well. And I don't know, it's interesting to, to, to have that initial rejection. Again, I think that's, I was speaking to a mate earlier today, weirdly, a mate ch- checked in and I was saying, you know what? I'm struggling a bit because I'm fine. I've been working really hard tr- tr- trying to get certain things off the ground, and this year in particular, I just feel like I've I've hit a lot of walls. And he said a really good thing. He was like, "Yeah, but the reason it will or you will succeed in this industry is because you, you're not you're not going anywhere." And I think the, the, that initial person saying to you, "No, you're 18. I'm not investing," is one of those things to go right. Well, the fact that you came back at all a year later is a sign that that you're you're in this and you're not yeah. going anywhere and you're going to succeed. Yeah. The fact that you came back with a year's worth of trading and went, yeah. here you go, I've got experience now, yeah. is even more impressive, right? It's going to it's yeah. going to make people go, "All right, you're th- th- oh, this is really what you want to do. You're not just a student who's going, oh, I just want I just want my chance to be Tarantino, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like you're not wanting right. it on a plate. Yeah, I think so many people expect that as well. Like I did, yeah. you know, before I learned how it actually works, I thought, all right, I'll go to uni, I'll then, I don't know, just wait around until someone gives me 10 million quid and says, go make a film. And yeah. But like, I think what we do, you know, both of us, like I say that 90% of my job is just problem solving, you know, whether mm. that's trying to get something financed, whether that's trying to get in front of certain people, you know, and any, and, and that's just kind of on the money raising stuff because I still have to do that, right? It, and then the directing, you know, like I'm doing my storyboard for the next film at the minute and it's, you're just problem solving scenes, right? You know, this looks like this, how, you know, what's the blocking light? And it's just problem solving. And then when you do your script analysis and you break down everything emotionally, all you're doing is trying to make it all make emotional sense and you're just problem solving and picking the right verbs and, you know, doing all this stuff. And then on set, you know, like, again, like 90% of, your, your conversations with, with a crew is just yes, no, that one, I like that one. You know, it's problem solving. And um, yeah. I think that's, it's a valuable skill in this game because, you know, you're right. I, I feel like you, a lot of days where you're up against a brick wall and, you know, most of the time it's like no one else can come up with a solution. But if I, you know, I just sit there and think about it for 10, 20 minutes and it's like, bam, let's try that. And then, you know, we will always find a way. There's always a way. I, I, I love your story as well from just hearing bits t- 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 today and all that, You've built up years and years of experience, but pressure free. Like, like when you're mm. making things with just your family, or with your mates, that there's no other goal than to make it. Yeah. And I think that's why there's probably that BFI stat of however many first time filmmakers never make a, a second film because they're taking or they're learning the, those lessons when they are under huge pressure because as you say it is a business so you learn a lot of those lessons with no pressure at all it's all just for the fun of it it's all for the art it's a bit annoying if it doesn't work how you wanted it on to the next one whereas a lot of filmmakers are learning that when it's like oh it didn't work out i now can't have a career (laughs) because because i've lost some stranger Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, yeah. millions of pounds, you know? Well, it's, it's like, I, I think the, the thing I feel blessed for as well, kind of that happened slightly further down the line after leaving uni, was learning the business side of the film industry. And like, I don't think there's too many people, you know, I get told quite a lot that you're quite rare because you've got the business side and the creative side. Yeah. And I don't like the business side, but I, I just want to direct. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, if I can wake up in the, every morning and be on set, I'm loving it. 
But, you know, you're still at a point, you know, the kind of producers that can raise big money are working on 10, 15, 20 million pound stuff because A, they get a bigger paycheck out of it and B, you know, the bigger the budget, you know, generally the, you know, the better chance it has at the box office. So they're not, you know, going to mess around with a one, two, three, four, five million pound stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's that, it's that willingness to learn the business side, even as a creative that has helped massively. You know, in terms of just getting stuff made, like you know, you can you can pitch your creative stuff all you like, but if you know you've got to sit in front of these you know high net worth individuals and companies and speak their language, I completely agree. It's a balance. I had that throughout my whole music career. I think we had the le- or me personally had the level of success I had partly because of having the business side figured out as well. Because if you don't have that side of it there's even more luck involved because someone who does have the business side sorted out has to fall in love with your work and not be looking to rip you off and so on and so forth. Whereas if you're the one looking after your own back, you've got that little bit extra of like, right, I'm not waiting for someone to to come and go, you know what, you're the one and I'm going to, you know, find the money, get it all going. You can't be a sitting duck, you know, like even as I think actors – Actors as well, like a lot of actors will message and be like, you know, what can I do to kind of get more parts? And it's like, I always tell them to start producing their own little short films because as an yeah. actor, there's always an element of you sitting duck waiting to fit in, in a duck, into a director's vision, right? But if you start making short films, you know, and make them yourself and learn that, them skills, you know, not you still have got the kind of waiting to fit in someone's vision part, but then you're also kind of like self-generating work stuff. And yeah. the idea for me... Like, of just kind of sitting there and waiting. Like, my brain just doesn't work like that. I can't. And, yeah, I, I'm very lucky that, you know, now we've got the production company set up. You know, we I, I'm in a position where I get to wake up every morning and work with, like, my little team. And, you know, we've kind of got all the bits of the puzzle to get stuff through development. And, and you know, a big chunk of that finance is there. So when we take it out, you know, it's far more. You know, the, the train has already left the station. You know, like, yeah. I'm feeling incredibly lucky to be one of them very few filmmakers that kind of has that kind of element in-house. But it's not been an easy ride, and it's still not easy. It's still, you know, as you go up the ladder, you know, you're learning new things. You're learning this time, you're learning about pre-sales, which has not been a thing in my films before because the scale of them. And, you know, so, you know, we we still make, I still make an awful lot of mistakes, but you learn, you know, and it's like balancing, you know, but I'm also aware enough to try and get support and advice at every possible opportunity, particularly when I'm out of my comfort zone you know, in terms of all the business side, because there's now millions of pounds on the line that you don't want to cock up, you know, yeah. for your investors that have trusted you with their cash. So, yeah, that, that's the stressful part. And, you know, that, that's the kind of bit that we're going through now with Free Day with, you know, the release coming out. And, um, and yeah, but, you know, I, I'm extremely lucky to, to be in the position I am and, you know, very much grateful for, for everyone around me that, that works with me. And, again, I know people always, like, it's part of the... <laughs> The big discussion point now is your age because of, as I said, being the youngest feature film director in the UK on your last film and this and that. But that does, I mean, we don't know each other that well. But, but I, was, I was talking to my old man last night about this podcast, about I'd, I'd watch the film and that. And I was buzzing because it's just so exciting to think how much you will have learned on these two and how much you can still learn and continue to learn. And do you know what I mean? Mm. It's kind of, we get so many. So many of your favourite directors, my favourite directors, will be fairly old now. And they've had to get to that age to get that good. Because as you say, I think there's so much that you can't learn just from watching films or reading books or whatever. You learn it on set. You you talked about your comfort and problems solving on on set. The first person I was ever on set with was, was Guy Ritchie. And it blew me away, his is relaxed nature it made me more relaxed but we're halfway up a mountain there's a hundred extras and he's just like i'm not sure this is really working is it shall we try this and just like proper casual yeah 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 let's move this like let's try it, it, it this way and just the casualness of of him at this point of his experience is just hugely exciting and again you're you're already on that journey so yeah yeah it's I a mean, buzz what a welcome to the film industry, firstly, Guy Ritchie movie. What an, yeah, an icon yeah. of mine. And, um, yeah, it's you just... Like, I do feel like I've had a head start in that respect, you know, starting so young. 
and yeah. you know but, but when i'm on set it's my most relaxed time it's yeah. the best part it's the most enjoyable time because i'm so homework driven like you know it's yeah start shooting the next movie in march end of march and i start my own work in september so it's you know five or six months prep so by the time i'm on set i've done two weeks rehearsal with the actors all the camera guys the sound guys know exactly where everything's going what we're doing there's still an element of spontaneity on the day of course there is but we go in there with a battle plan you know like I'm not coming up with stuff on a day. It's just these like little, with the actors, the emotional intuition to tweak stuff and knowing how to do that and how each actor works. But you've learned that in rehearsal and you've got, because you've done your script analysis, you've got a million different ways of solving it already. And everything on the, on the visual side is set. And, you know, I, I can just relax. You know, like, I, I had such a great time with Three Day Millionaire because, you know, I had two great producers on that. So unlike Destination Jewsby, where we had to finish a 12-hour day and then I had to go worry about the money, yeah. you know, and, or the lack of you know, running out of money. Uh, with Free Day, it was great because, you know, the producers were class. They just let me direct, didn't bother me about anything else that was going on. Did a fantastic job. And Beautiful. I just, it, it felt for the first time like it was a sustainable job. You know, like after Jewsby, I needed like six months off just to like get back to normal. Like my head would fry because yeah. I was doing both them things and, you know, that and on, on the budget that small one, you know. I think the average age of the crew on that one was like 22, 23. And obviously I'm a kid and, you know, like we did a, a fucking really good job for what we had. But Free Day was like, you know, different gravy in terms of I just got to do my job. And, you know, I tell all of the people I work with, like, we're all better if I can just do my job and focus. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of the leader of the orchestra, if you like. And if I've got my back to you because I'm worried about something else, we're all going to be misfiring. So, yeah, you know, but, but everyone, you know, it, it was great. And it was, you know, once I'm on set, I just feel blessed, man. Like, not many people get to do what we do. And there's not many industries where you have to fight as hard to actually do your job. You know, you'll know this as an actor, like, it's mental. You know, the amount of work you have to do and the amount of, like, fight battles you have to win just to do the fucking job. Yeah. Like, it's insane, like, when you think about it. Yeah, like. It's absolutely mad. There's there's no other... I've, I've never experienced industry like it. And again, you've got to bear in mind music, podcasting, all of those things. I want to do it, I did it. Yeah. Acting and script writing and direction and everything. Fucking hell, it's a fight to do. It's just, mate. I just want to do it, mate. And yeah, yeah it's, it's a mad one. So I completely understand the excitement and joy when you are there. Yeah. Fucking dr- drink it's, it in, right? Like, you're like, your adrenaline's pumping, like, you're just, you're in your, like, you're in your element. That's what you do all of this kind of money raising and homework and, you know, like, give years of what feels like your identity away, you know? Yeah. Like, it's, to me, it's like, it's not just a film, it's not just my job or my career, it's like, people ask, right, you know, who are you? Like, number one film director. Number two, Grimsby Town fan. Number three, like six foot nine, lanky kid. Like, you know, like, it, it's so much of what I am that you just take it seriously. And then when you get to do it, it's like, just bless me. Love it. I, I love it. Well, let's get really into talking about A Three Day Millionaire because I watched it a couple of nights ago. Absolutely adored it. There's loads of bits I want you to kind of tell me about that we previously discussed in that in that little sit down, but I yeah. can't remember if I said at the time it was so weird to watch because this is just a weird little anecdote. I've never t- told anyone unless I told you it then. This was weird to watch because the first ever email conversation I had with Tom Hardy, we were trying to come up with a heist movie idea, and I suggested it be Deep Sea Fisherman. Um, uh-huh. robbing a charity and the reason that came about is because I didn't know I, I read an article that in the UK deep sea fisherman is the job that has the highest yeah. death rate yeah it is like higher than army soldiers higher yeah. than firemen higher than all this yet there's all this respect on soldiers and policemen and firemen you don't really think of people respecting fishermen it's a fisherman who gives a shit kind of thing yeah. it's a mad job so yeah, it was it was then mad to see yeah. this, and it's like, and it comes together so beautifully. Yeah. So, where did the script come from? How did it come to you, and what was the kind of process of it all? Yeah, I got sent it. Um, the writer Paul Stevenson, who is an absolute gem, he's from Hull, which is about twenty miles north of Grimsby, and yeah. um, he had this script about Grimsby. And uh, you know, there, there's not too many of us in the film industry from Grimsby, so I think he found me on Facebook or Twitter and he sent it to <laughs> yeah. me. And I just read the first five pages. And I was like, yes. Like, he just spoke my language, and it was like, you know, it was that kind of hyper-real characters, that super-visual kind of slightly Guy Ritchie, slightly Edgar Wrighty, you know, Mate, kind of it, it, buzz. It, it, it struck me instantly of lock, stock, snatch, yeah. train spotting, all of these working-class characters, but slickly written, but they yeah. happen to be 
fisherman in Grimsby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just a cracking script, mate. Like, you know, like I had so much to work with. You know, I always said, you know, like it's a kind of 10 out of 10 script. And if I don't make at least an 8 out of 10 movie, I've cocked out. You know, like yeah. it, it was just, you know, it was all there. And, you know, like it got all the talent on board, you know, like all the actors, it raised the finance, you know, like as much as I'm standing there hyping it up, you know, like we're selling the product. And the product at that point was the script. And that kind of yeah. got everyone on the train, you know, and I, and I don't have anything to do with writing, you know, like I sometimes for our films, I come up with the ideas and, you know, now we've got a head of development that works for me, but, you know, with Free Day, it was set, the script was sent like that. And, you know, we spent probably about six months just making tweaks and kind of really making it into sort of my story. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, cause like reading it, it's all set in Grimsby and I'm like, I spent half my childhood up there, you know, like school holidays and being a Grimsby fan. Um, I knew where I wanted to shoot everything. So a lot of it was just tweaking it to places I knew I wanted to shoot and just making yeah. it kind of really fitting Grimsby. And um, yeah, man, it's a blast. It, you know, it kind of, it, it, it's that comedy heist overall, but it's got so much to it, isn't it? It's got like the heart, it's got the sad stuff, the music, the great characters, like, you know, as you can probably tell, I'm very proud of it. And, um, well, and, yeah. and, and rightfully so. Can you tell me or the listeners, because it's explained in the film and it's what you, it was kind of what you opened with when you were telling me about it in 2019 or whenever it was or or whenever we met up pre-pandemic tell me about the idea of a three-day millionaire yeah so a three-day millionaire was the the kind of local term coined in Grimsby and Hull for the trawlerman and the trawlerman then would go to sea for three or four weeks at a time and they'd have three days off on land before they went back to sea again um, and it was fisherman folklore probably set up by the pubs that if you went back to sea with money, your ship would sink. So they'd get on land, give a small amount of their wage to their wives to cover all the, the bills and whatnot, and then just go on the piss for three days. You know, in yeah. Grimsby, there's one road called Freeman Street, um, which was just back in its heyday. It was like the Las Vegas Strip of North East Lincolnshire. Yeah. Like, it was mental. And they'd all get these pinstripe suits made whenever they got back and, you know, just had an absolute blast. And, you know, they'd have their own taxi driver for the whole three days and just drive them between pubs and, and, and whatnot. And... I was just like, what an era. And there's so many stories in Grimsby. Like you meet so many people just out, like in general, who obviously have links to the fishing industry. It was, a, it was the largest port in the world, you know, yeah. in its heyday. And then it kind of all died very quickly. Yeah. So everyone's got a story about trauma and just some of these stories that were coming out, you know, about these three-day millionaires and the kind of shit they got up to. And, you know, they get so rattled sometimes that if there was, if they needed an extra person on a ship, you know, these tournaments would be back for like half a day. They get so rattled that the captain would get off the ship, drag them back on ship and they'd sober up at sea back in the North Sea. And it's like, it's mad. I met one trawlerman, a guy called Tony, who he was on national news in like the, it must have been like the 60s, I want to say, when he was like 14. And uh, he smuggled himself onto a ship, uh, hid in the lifeboats, was only discovered halfway across the North Sea when it got too cold and he kind of had to run in. And then he was just like a trawlerman. And it was on national news that these kids had gone like, you know, got on this boat. And like, but I mean, the whole town, you know, like the nation has pre, a kind of preconcept of what Grimsby is, you know, based on its name and, you know, the, the slacking off it gets in the media and, Sacha Baron Cohen film didn't help and Skint didn't help and you know like it's kind of been the butt of jokes for, for many years but this place is like teething with stories and like you've seen the film like even to shoot there man like because the town's so consistent aesthetically like it's all that ex-industrial kind of red brick feel it's like a pre-built film set you know like yeah, some of them 100%. scenes on the docks it's like wow like why is this place not like utilised more like it's just it just all felt right you know essentially it's all felt like this is a thing that needs to happen I completely agree. I think instantly, visually, it did everything. You look like there was no question over it being the right place and just just oozing out the screen. But I think the characters as well were just instantly engaging. You instantly know them and recognise them. So, can you talk to me a, a, a little bit about casting? Because Michael K Kinsey, I think, jumps out as an absolute star, and he was in in Destination Jewsbury as well. Yeah, mate. I mean, Michael is one of my best mates, um, yeah. and I I met Michael. He's amazing. I was watching him, and I was like, where do I know him from? Because he's got mate. such a presence. And well, I was like, like, I looked him up. I was like, I don't know him from anywhere. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's going to blow up. Right? He's going to blow up. I know him like, from you know, knowing people like that, you know? Mate, honestly, like, he's mint, and he's been, like, one of my best mates for ages. And we met because I, I was doing one of my little short films in York, and I had an actor drop out, so I put on his casting website, will anyone come out? And he got the train up from London at his own expense. 
you know, we did some rehearsals that morning and shot something and he was just classing it. I was like, yeah. I love it. Like, this kid's great. And he's like the loveliest human being. And yeah, this is his like big thing, I think. Like, this is his first big role in a movie. And, you know, they're all mint and Michael's mint. And, you know, there, there, there was three of them, six kind of main younger cast. This was their first film. Amazing. Um, you know, a couple of them hadn't literally hadn't been on a film and TV set before. And like, you know, I do all the casting myself. I understand why some directors don't watch every single casting tape they get in. Mm-hmm. But for me, just the way that I am and, and how important casting is to me, like I feel like 70% of my job, I need to watch every tape, you know, so I watched tens of thousands for this, like, like mental. Like I, I was in my little cubby hole for like three weeks just with a massive hard drive watching these tapes. And yeah, like you just find these gems that, you know, maybe a casting director because their their version of the character in their head is slightly different from, you know, like naturally, like with different humans, it doesn't, you know, whoever it is making these judgment calls might not have found these gems. And yeah, yeah I kind of think it's a bit, I don't want to say it's lazy directing, not doing that, but I, I've never understood, you know, when it's so important. And, you know, I, I still had an element on this film where you don't have to cast big names in every role. And I get that that. You know, as you go up bigger and bigger, like I get that for your main roles, you know, there's got to be a certain amount of box office value. Like, I hate yeah. the term and I hate you have to think about this kind of shit rather than cast the exact right person. But, you know, with this one, I still, you know, in the main had, had the license to cast kind of exactly who I like, you know, regardless and, of what they've done. And again, people, there's such a history, more, I guess more in TV than necessarily in film, there's such a history of amazing unknown casting. Again, Shane Meadows is the obvious example, the amount of people he's brought through, but you don't even have to go gritty. Like Game of Thrones, most yeah. of that cast we didn't know. Yeah. And it, it's the biggest TV show of all time. It's kind of, it, it's. I think it's a real mistake in the industry that there is always or often this belief that, that, that we need X amount of names and X amount yeah. of, of this and that. It's like, no, you need the right people yeah. in the right role. If it's a good script and good sh- sh- yeah. show you know if it's sh- shit yeah yeah you need big names to pull people in but yeah. if it's good then believe in it like back yeah. yourselves and just get yeah. the right people you know yeah i was listening just yesterday to your episode with paddy uh, yeah and i mean what an hour of entertainment firstly like yeah especially as a director me. like uh, unbelievable yeah. and um you having a similar conversation with him about some of the you know the, the stars that shows like game of thrones and how to dragon find yeah and you know i I feel like casting is definitely, you know, probably my strongest point as director. You know, yes. as I say, like, if you get it right, you've kind of done 70% of your job. And, you know, you're yeah. working with people that really buy into it. And, you know, like, they're, they're similar age to me. So they're all young, hungry, you know, like, the majority of them, you know, at the start of their careers, you know, obviously there's a few kind of veterans in the film yeah. who were equally as brilliant. And, um, yeah. Well, I need to talk about t- two of the veterans because... Cole Meany from Layer Cake, Conair, Gangs of London, Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, so many big things. And Robbie G, like, I got yes. to work with a, a Robbie on Walk Like a Panther, but I grew up on Desmond's. We've mentioned yes. Guy Ritchie and Snatch. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's an absolute icon, in my opinion, like one of the yeah. best to have done it and constantly working as well. So yeah. how was it to add those people who... Are your seniors like experience yeah. wise? I'm not just talking age. Yeah, as yeah, as a young yeah. man, yeah. they've worked with so, so like no exaggerations. Some of the best in the history yeah. of film oh, and mate, TV. So tell me about it. Like even if you just look at like the cast of Layer Cake, yeah, alone, you know, yeah. and they've you know there's there's fifty Layer Cakes on on their resumes combined, and yeah. um, like the, the age thing. Like, you are how, however old you are, aren't you? You wake up in the morning, you can't do all about it. It's like, yeah. well, you know, this is me, take it or leave it. And, yeah. you know, like, but but with, with them, it was the first movie where I've kind of worked with them bigger names. And, you know, they're, they're, I think what I learned from this one was that quite organically, you realise pretty quickly, you don't have to give them much. You know, like they, you know, the ex, you know you're paying not just for their name, you're paying for their brain, you know, mm-hmm. and some of the stuff that these, you know, older actors, more experienced actors were doing. It's like stuff that you'd never think about in your own work. You know, like there, there was one scene with, with, with Colm and um, it's the boardroom scene, you know, where he's introducing the film with the, uh, the glass, glass of water. And, yeah. um, you know, when we were filming his single, he is obviously, he's got the, he's got this lady there presenting to all the kind of uh, important people in the town about this new redevelopment of the docks. And he's organised this meeting. This was the backstory. He'd organised this, back, this uh, backstory to... So they'd all go off and whisper and there's this other offer on the docks that he's trying to up the price for. 
And we had a little conversation in his trailer about this. And he was like, yeah, I like that. And then I didn't give him any, anything more about the scene. And then he's sitting there, and instead of just watching the lady giving a speech, he's making these subtle little eye movements, watching everyone else watching her to make sure they're listening. And I'm like, man, smart. And like, yeah. you know, you really like, you know. He's in it. Yeah, you, obviously you are, you know, you do have to direct them, of course, but it's like these subtle little nudges. You know, it's like, and you know, they, they, they just bring so much more than their name and their CV. It's like, you know, you're paying for like the pure talent of all of these guys. And, you know, like it was just a joy to work with. They were, they all bought into it. Like Colin, the day he got there, one of the runners in their Peugeot 107, Colin was like, can you take me for a tour around Grimsby? So you've got this like A-list actor going around a per- in a Peugeot 107 around like Grimsby fish docks. And I'm like, what a guy. Like, you know, everyone bought into it. And, you know, no matter how experienced or how big they were, you know, like they were all like, all right, I see what we're doing here now. And, you know, they, the amount I learned off them and, you know, just the, they're just all of them like top, top people. I can't how, speak highly enough. How was it when you're in your little cubby hole for three weeks going through tapes and whatnot? How was it when you found your lead? Yeah. Because it's so key as as a film that talks directly to the camera kind of thing mm. and really has these kind of sprawling, really important monologues and stuff like mm. that. It's fucking, obviously it's always key, but it's proper key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, I think with almost all the cast, when you see, when I saw their tapes, the ones we went with, it was a, yeah. it was like fucking yes. Like, honestly, it's like the biggest euphoric rush of your fucking life. Yeah. Like it is, you like you found the one and, you know, you do have to trawl through sometimes, you know, a lot of, you know, like a lot of people playing it wrong, you know, either trying to play the comedy too hard or playing the kind of, the, the Grimsby stereotype tropes, you know, that stuff that isn't in the casting brief and, you know, they're kind of making these assumptions. But all of them, I went with the people that, that played it true. You know, like, yeah. I'm sure, you, you know, like, it's people that actually play it true. And, um, you know, James, the, the lead, you know, when I saw his tape, I think I found him on Instagram. I didn't want to wait for his agent to respond because he might have got another gig. I found him on Instagram, DM'd him, saying, give me a call. And within, like, 20 minutes, we were on a FaceTime. I actually took him, I wanted I him so it. bad, I drove up to Derby to meet his family, took him to Grimsby Chesterfield to kind of get him attached to Grimsby Town. This was a pre-season friendly, I think we lost like 2-1 or something, it was boring. But I was like, I've got to get him. You know, you, you get these massive attachments to people when they're right, when they fit in your thing. It's and perfect for it. Like, yeah, especially oozing, for that role. Oozing charisma and just his look and everything, it's... Yeah, it is he looks that- like a tournament, doesn't he? He looks like a trawlerman, but he would also be the heartthrob in town yeah, and yeah. that kind of thing. But he's not this like chiseled Brad yeah. Pitt or whatever. But it's yeah. it's exactly that. It's those. Yeah. I, I always bring up the example of of working in in, in retail and l- looking back at who were the girls or the guys that were just your dream girl or dream guy. And if you bumped into him on a night out, are the they probably wouldn't have been. But in that context, in this weird yeah. little world, everything changes slightly. Yeah. And it's similar. I like going to school in South End, so near a coastal-ish town. It is weird what changes and what clicks and what's and what's yeah, the one. It's like this little micro, uh, it's like its own little kind of um, life spule, isn't it? Like, yeah. I don't know what the right word is. It's like one of them Petri dishes of uh, yeah. life that just exists in this little kind of corner niche of the UK in this little, you know, and the values and what's important and what, what their identity is formed of is so specific to this place, you know, yeah. that, and that's what the whole film about really, you know, about identity and it's all stripped back and, and you know, about Grimsby's identity and, and the identity of these trawlermen and what happens to them when they, that gets pulled from under their feet, you know, everything they live and die by. And um yeah, I mean, James was class and, again, like, lovely guy. I think this will be, you know, he's done a lot of big stuff already, like, you know, lots of big stuff. And, um, yeah, yeah, he was class. And, you know, again, like, we're so tight, like, all of us. Like, I've never done a film where it's, like, a year later we're, like, I just love them all. And what they gave me in their performances and their commitment, like, I will always be in debt to them. I love it, I love it. Well, I'll start to wrap things up and just ask what's ahead because i mean oh first things first i'll i'll also say because you know it's always the bit that's awkward for a a guest to do it's so so important to support independent films in the cinema week of release all this kind of thing i really genuinely this is 
so me, but I genuinely r- regularly just panic that we're going to lose cinemas because they're s- s- so important to me. And independent British film is some of the best film in the world. And we can't... I love a blockbuster, but I don't want only blockbusters and if we don't support these films that have got heart and character and all that then all we're going to be left with is 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 superhero films and again i'm the biggest superhero film nerd ever but it can't be only that i see yeah so so what's ahead well it's exactly like you said mate like it's so hard to get a film made that is original and isn't ip based and the higher you got the ladder the more it's either got to be a remake or something based on existing intellectual property, like a book or, or, or whatever, yeah. you know, it's, it just gets harder and harder. And if we want these, like, proper British indie stuff coming through, like, we've got to support it, right? And, you know, yeah. like, cinema is still struggling, you know, and pers- I don't know if that is still, a- we can blame the pandemic or if that has just accelerated the landscape change to, to streamers. Yeah. You know, like, the, the, there is lots of stuff getting made in the UK, but it's definitely swinging towards that big-scale stuff, which is great, but... You know, like proper indie stuff where people can break through and get these kind of chances needs to be at the kind of forefront of all of our kind of minds a bit. And for greedy, like for selfish reasons as well, you mentioned Paddy earlier. Journeyman is one of the best films I've ever seen. He basically decided he was going to stop making films because of just how hard it was to get people in screens, to get it on screens and all that. Thankfully, he's, he's... changed on a lot of that now as as we discussed in that episode but i would have loved two more paddy films since then you know just selfishly like not even any support thing just you need more of that you know yeah it's fucking hard to get films made like you know it looks all glamorous on social media i'm sure you know but it's like the day-to-day of grafting just to get to day one of shooting you know anyone that does it has my full and utter admiration because yeah it is not all it uh, is cranked up to be. It's, uh, yeah, it's certainly not as sexy on the inside as it may appear on the outside. Yeah. So, 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 so what is ahead? You, you've got the next film planned and in place, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a Christmas movie that we're planning to shoot in March. Um, so all, all the details I'm allowed to uh, reveal. It's not like it's some fucking Star Wars or something. I don't know about no, it. No, so no, no. That's quite frankly all I know now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, you know, our company, Shush Films, you know, we've got the next kind of three or four lined up, you know, all at, all at um, kind of quite advanced stages of development and, and some with kind of money attached to it and some with cast attached. And, you know, like, I feel like I have quite a clear kind of ideal step up the ladder everyone is every, each of them films is bigger than the last and you know kind of it's just a bigger and better kind of my thing but you know on a, on a bigger scale if you like you know yeah. and um yeah again just feel like completely blessed that you know i'm on this journey and you know just the people i get to work with are great and if i can just do, keep doing what i'm doing now for the rest of my life i'll die a very happy boy you know like that i have no grand ambitions of doing a Marvel movie or buggering off to Hollywood or, you know, whatever that, that kind of thing looks like. If, if I get to, you know, wake up in the morning, work with my team I'm working with now, make the kind of movies we're making and just each one's getting bigger and better than the last and, and you're learning still, you know, I don't think you ever stop learning in this industry, right? And then um, it's just more of the same, hopefully a little bit easier on the financing side. But, um, you know, uh, um if you'd have asked me five years ago what I'd be doing in five years, there's no way I would have said this. You know, so yeah. I, I am uh, very grateful and just very excited, man. You know, like it's you keep on going, don't you? You keep on fighting, and uh, you know, you get stuff made. I love it. I love it. I had I had Kevin Smith on a while back, and again, I don't think there's any comparison between your films, but his independent <laughs> nature and all that. Um, and he spoke about how when he got successful, he got blinded by the kind of lights of of the opportunity to do big superhero films or whatever else. And then he had a real breakthrough moment. I think it was, was when he had his heart attack that he went, well, within reason, anyone can or everyone wants to make a superhero film. And the way he put it was, no one wants to make a Kevin Smith film. So it's my responsibility to make kevin smith films because 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 and again it's i think it's more no one else can like that's the beauty yeah. of every individual director or writer or or whatever ever else obviously it's going to be appealing when other 
like everyone's going to have a favorite genre or a favorite area but the fact is you you're the only one that can make the you tell your stories in your way and all that kind of thing and i think that was just as i said hearing that from kevin smith was so dope because he's like again the way he put it was no one else wants to make them but again it's that thing of it's his duty to make his films properly rather than anything else it's your identity, man. Like you leave so much of your identity on that screen, and and yeah. you know, with that, I, I see my life segmented into the films I've done. You know, like that's like my eras, and it's like to to do, to, like to to say yes to the money on some big kind of corporate soulless thing that hasn't got my heart in it. It just wouldn't feel right, and I, I mm. couldn't think of anything worse. Like, <laughs> like, but but yeah. We'll see. Hopefully, in ten years' time, I've done six superhero movies, and we can pretend this conversation never happened. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, mate. It's been a, a pleasure to catch up again. As I've said before, I always get a, a buzz when I hear from peers or any of the or the other PR people who hit me up, and it's a name I know and, and, and wanted to talk to. You know, on or off mic, anyway. It's always a buzz to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. That's easy. So, yeah. It's a pleasure. Mate, the, the pleasure is absolutely mine, genuinely. I have uh, wanted to do this for, for many, many years, and I, I feel very lucky to, uh, to be chatting with you today. And good to see you again, mate. And you, mate. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully get you on the red carpet in a few weeks, eh? Yeah, yeah, all over it, mate. been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was episode 485. I told you it was a good one. Jack's amazing, man. He's a proper inspiration. And I know he's a big fan of the podcast, so it's dope. I was talking to him privately and saying, I'm in a a really weird position now where (laughs) the people who grew up listening to my music on my podcast are now like making films and making TV and making big decisions. And whilst that makes me feel old, it excites me because I might get to work with some of these these fuckers and they're all amazing. So yeah, anyway, I'll be back next week. I'm giving you two episodes next week as well, to be completely honest. And one of them is going to be the best surprise of your lives. I've basically got a lot of good treats for you in December. Let's just say that. So until next week, Stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.